This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm very excited to introduce you to Janelle Jones. Janelle is an early education entrepreneur currently operating multiple early learning centers, which specialize in providing high-quality learning experiences to children who experience trauma in low-income areas. She joins me today on Uncorking a Story to talk about her life and her book, Shattered, in which she discusses some very personal aspects of her life and role as an adoptive parent. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Janelle. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm, I'm excited to have you here, Janelle, and I'm curious uh, to know, where does your story as an author begin? My story as an author begins when we brought my youngest child, Mercy, into our, our home. So. Honestly, I don't know if I had really planned on writing a book, but the situations we faced in dealing with Mercy really gave me um, gave me insight into a world I knew nothing about. And I felt that this was a journey that needed to be shared. Well, tell me, paint a picture of your life. What was life like before Mercy? What kind of was going on in, in your life then? And what spurred you to, to look into the foster system uh, as a way of growing your family? So my life before Mercy, we were, I'm a big family. So we have six children anyways. And I actually had adopted um, my youngest son at the time. And we were just doing the family thing. You know, we had kids and basketball, volleyball, soccer, um, high school, elementary kids. I had five businesses. Um, my husband was, you know, really up there in his field. And we were just a normal, busy family doing what we do. And then at church one day, there was this cute little girl who needed a home. And my husband said the famous words, what's one more? And that's how we got her. What's one more? Uh, what five? I have to just pause and, and five businesses. Just what? Wh I mean, what are these businesses? I mean, five businesses. It sounds like your your hands are full. They were. So I had um, at the time I had five childcare centers. So, but I managed my managers. So I'm not necessarily day to day in all the locations. 
but I do an overall management and I pop in. Got it. Okay. So tell me, you're 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 at church. You see this, you know, girl who needs a home. Your husband says, you know, what's one more? What's your first reaction to to that? I think I was happy because I had already found out she needed a home. So, you know, I, I was bringing her to him like, hey, this little girl needs a home. And we kind of got a connection because I've been winking and smiling at her for the past couple of weeks at church. So my husband, he loves kids. I can't say that he would have this many without me. <laughs> That's probably my push. Um, but, you know, he's really always been like, if that's what we should do, like kind of a give back, like we've been blessed to have the life we have. So we definitely should, you know, pay it forward. And I think that's how we look at it. And I'm used to kids. I'm used to kids that can be a little difficult. We had, um, my nephew was one of my bonus children. I call them. I have two children that are bonus children. My bonus children, I did not give birth to. Um, and my nephew was one and he was not easy. So I think we were looking at it going, if we could do what we've already done, then really what is one more? And so tell me early, early on, what was the process like moving from, you know, seeing this girl at church, deciding you'd like to bring her into your home and then adopting her? What was that? What was that process like? Honestly, when we said we were interested in possibly like, you know, bringing her in, like three days later, I found myself in this meeting and they were giving her to us. Like she, oh, you guys are perfect. Here you go. Like you, you check all the boxes off. And I think at a certain point when I reflect on it, even if I had hesitations, the way they kind of just like put her in her lap, it was almost kind of like we couldn't say no. Was there a red flag though, that there were that you know, eager or willing to to hand her over? Or did you just think, hey, this is great. This is working out the way it's supposed to be. I think I thought it was working out, but I can't say that's not typical. You know, if you look at our foster and our adoptive systems in the United States, they have so many children they're trying to place. If you're a viable option, they're putting that kid with you. Like okay. they don't have time to, you know, do Google reviews. They're just, here you go. You're it. So Mercy was how old at this point in time? She was eight. She was eight years old. And, you know, I know you mentioned you previously had adopted um, your youngest. How old was your youngest when you adopted them? He we brought him home at three days old and we adopted him at three. So he came home from the hospital with us. OK. And so there was a difference there when he came into the home. He never left. All right. So what was what were some of those early days like when uh, with Mercy in your care? You know, interesting enough, they were challenging and, and a lot of it I thought was she needs love, stability and guidance. The thing about Mercy, there's a lot of things we weren't told. And so there's a lot of things that started to unravel, but I'm kind of one of those people, I'm a mom and I just try to find the solution. So, like one of the red flags was um, the fact that she had 21 placements from three to eight, which means that she was being moved about every four months. And so if you think about a child who starts school at five, 
if they're being moved to whole households every four months, how can they get any type of educational foundation? So I'm facing trouble at school. And it's like, okay, well, does she have a learning disability or is it that she's just doesn't know her ABCs and her one, two, threes, you know? So there's a lot of things I'm trying to unravel because there's a lot of pieces to the story that they're not giving me. And I thought that they were unknown, but in the book I described, they were known. So they, they had more of a backstory than they shared with you ahead of time. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, so what was it like to sort of navigating that, you know, that, that journey with her? So you, 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 you've got her in your home. Um, you're seeing some, you know, some, you, there's some questions you have in terms of, you know, kind of maybe what had happened earlier on. Why were there so many different placements? Um, well, tell me, what did you learn? Well, I learned that one, we weren't given all the information and purposely. So it was purposely withheld because the language that was said was, if we had told you the truth, you probably wouldn't have adopted her. Yeah. And this is something that I've learned happens all the time in our system. Um, and that's like one of my motivations of writing this book, because you can't disclose, you cannot withhold information that's vital to people making their decisions. You know, when you buy a house, you are given disclosures. Yeah. You have to be told if there's a flood, if there's a fire, if there's a murder in the house, but we can adopt whole children or foster whole children and you can just withhold information that you want to. And I and I think a child is more important than a house. Oh, sure. So that's like that was really some of the things that I learned like and who are these people that are withholding this vital information and why would they and what is your background because it doesn't make sense like any person any logical person would think that this is vital for anybody that's going to be put in the position and it hurts these children so you're withholding all this information well if I would have known I could have maybe got the therapy she needed, the tutoring she needed. I could have did intervention earlier. And with children, you know, there's you have time frames of rapid brain development. And so if you're missing windows because they're t- purposely not giving you what you need to know, that's hurting children and the families that are adopting them. So how long into... Um, your time of having mercy, did you start getting answers to these questions? How much time elapsed? So all hell, for lack of better words, started breaking loose about two and a half years after. And then between about, I would say about three to four years is when the truth came out. And it didn't come out at the sake of them. It came out You know, I describe in the book, like my investigative process, how I was just really blessed and material started falling into my hands, but they wouldn't have told me. And they can't say they didn't know because my daughter has like 10 siblings. And at one point I'm able to get in touch with them and all the information starts coming about out about her past. 
And it's all court documented. They just didn't give me the information. So if it's two and a half years, um, so she's about 10, 10, 11 at this point, kind of entering, you know, a time of big change in your life, right? Puberty's probably kicking in. Hormones mm -hmm. are raging. I can only imagine, you know, that combined with the traumatic or trauma from a background, why, why things start kind of bubbling up at this point. Right. And the other thing that's not disclosed, you know, when children are taken away from their families, we know it's going to be trauma, right? We can all expect that they had something going on and it had to be bad in order for them to enter the system. But our responsibility when we take these children into the system is to protect them and give them better. My daughter's trauma continued in the system. So she was continuously abused and tormented and bad things happened to her in the system, which happens to a lot of these children. And they know this and they don't disclose that either. Wow. So it's almost like you've, you've got a time bomb in your house, basically. I mean, I hate to... to make it so impersonal, but that's that's kind of the image that's coming to my head is is like this ticking time bomb. And and does the time bomb go off? That's what I describe in the book. Yeah. 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 Well, let's talk about the book. The book, of course, is Shattered. Um, what when did you start writing it? When did you think to start writing a book about about these experiences? I started writing this book about two years ago. So Mercy is now 16. So we are still in this, right? Um, but about two years ago, I really started trying to put this together because at a certain point I was like, this is absolutely ridiculous. And nobody be will believe it. Really, the people that were going through it with me couldn't believe it. They're like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, nobody knows this. But interesting enough, there's all these whispers in the foster and the adoptive care community. You may get these talks from other parents, but nobody really talks about what really happens. And if we don't talk about what happens, we can't make changes to our system. And that's what, that's why, you know, I, I wrote it. It's because we need real change because we're, ha we're seeing the effects of what's going on in these systems by what's going on our, on our streets now. Our homeless rates, our amount of um, foster care, children that are in the prison systems, we're seeing the effects. Right. And, and you know, the prison system isn't, you know, the right place for getting, you know, your, your trauma dealt with. Um, right. It's only, it's really only going to add to it. Right. And in Arizona, we are putting our children who can't get mental health care in juvenile because they don't have a home. So they just lock them up and put them in juvie. That is barbaric at, at a minimum, you know, and nobody knows these things. People just do it because nobody knows these children have no advocates. So you start writing the book a couple of years ago. You feel it's important to share the story that you and your family and, and Mercy are going through. And I mean, is the intent here to to sort of serve as a starting point for changing the system or or was your intent something else? A starting point to to change the system, because I really do feel that if we don't talk about it, we can't fix it. 
And also, even when it comes to the therapies that these children need, I don't think that there's enough documented material about the impacts of trauma on these children from, you know, a young age and even as it continues into their teenage and adult years. And so if we're not really saying this is what happens and this is what happens to families and how do we make changes to make it safer for everyone, the system's going to continue. And that's just not there. We, we live in the United States. You know, these are these are stories you would hear about in other countries, in third world countries. They shouldn't be happening here. So what, what were some of your biggest challenges writing this book? It's, is this the first book you've ever written? Yes, it's the first book I've ever written. All right, so you I mean you're tackling some some you're tackling tackling a very heavy issue. Um you know you you've got a lot going on in your life and now you're taking on this uh project and and writing a book is I mean writing a book is like running a small business. I mean it, it you have to think about it as such. Um so you're 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 taking a lot of this on what what you know what what was what was your writing experience like? You know, the writing experience was really hard um, because it's so much trauma. So, so much trauma in the way it affected me. And then one of the one of the hardest things to do was to really tell the story without overtelling the story, which is I didn't want it to be all death, gloom and destruction because I don't want to discourage people from adopting and fostering children, I really want to have the conversation to help the system. So really trying to figure out how to do that in a manner that that works and be honest. And then I'm putting my true, honest story out. This this story is 100% true. And then like looking at things going, yeah, I probably shouldn't have did that, you know, <laughs> and and really having to write about that and say, ooh, let me show you how I wasn't a good parent in, in this, in this situation. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, writing a book, especially a book like this, which I'd imagine would be considered a memoir, um, mm-hmm. in addition to being like an educational piece, it takes a tremendous amount of vulnerability because you are putting your story and the story of your daughter and family out yeah. there. And it's a very personal story. So, yes. Did you have anyone like coaching you through this process at all? I mean, as a first time author, did you have some help? Yes, I did. I had I went to a couple people that had writing experience. Um, I chose one of my friends. She's actually a psychologist. And um, she was she helped me and she even had to pick me up like, okay, let's get out. Let's get out the bathroom crying after a month and let's keep writing. So I had to I had to build a team to help me get through it. That I love the idea of building a team. I think there's a lot of people out there and a lot of people listen to the show, listen to to hear the author's stories and how they how they went about, you know, publishing their book, especially first-time author stories are really interesting. And this idea of, you know, writing and having a team put together is a little contradictory to a lot of what a lot of people think. A lot of people think, well, you know, being a writer, it's a it's a very, you know, kind of a solopreneur type, you know, role where you're you're kind of going off somewhere and you're doing your writing thing. And then when it's ready, you send it out and then magically it gets published. But there really is a team that authors have to put together, whether it's editors, agents, if you go that route, you know, their publisher, beta readers, 
Um, how, how important was having that team for you? It was very important because I am not, I don't, I don't feel that even my writing skills, like I needed somebody saying, this is okay, this is good. And I needed that encouragement. And without that, I wouldn't have made it. And one thing about me and even my business philosophy, you know, I said at the beginning, I had five businesses when we um, brought Mercy in. I can't run five businesses. And I and I have a philosophy of finding the people that can do the job better than me. And so you can't be afraid of that. You can't be afraid of bringing people in that are going to push you to be your best. And that's, you know, that's a business philosophy I have. But that was even with the book. I've, I had somebody go, mm, nope, that's not good. Like, we need to redo this or you know, this isn't flowing. And even though it may hurt your feelings a little bit, if you want the best product, that's what you have to do. Yeah, writers writers need encouragement, as you pointed out. They need people to help pick you up off the floor out of the bathroom crying. They also need honesty and, and honest feedback. And, you know, there there's this notion when you're writing, you know, I always say, hey, I read 100,000 words. I know only 75,000 are going to make it into the the final the final draft. And that's where the editor comes in and says, hey, you know, this doesn't flow or you need to rethink this or this doesn't really take the story forward. Even if it's like an aspect that's so important to you that you love, they call it like killing your darlings. Like you sometimes you have to you've got to kill your darlings. And that right. that's a hard thing to understand. But you also have to trust that you know, these experts who have done this before know more than you do. And, you know, they kind of trust them a little bit. Yeah, there's a lot of aspects of my life that didn't make it into the book. Um, and it didn't mean that they weren't good, but they just, they did not move the story forward like we needed it moved. Yeah. And you're right, killing your darlings is hard, but you got to do it. You got to do it. I, I've 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 resisted it and have paid the consequences. <laughs> People tell me, you know, are a little bit more critical on, on some of the things that I've written, especially early on in my mm -hmm. time as a writer. What did you you know, obviously you you put this story together to help people sort of educate people, you know, on what really is going on in the system, hopefully force some change or, or shed a light that will eventually lead to change in the system. What did you learn about yourself during the writing process? You know, I, interesting enough, I am a child of trauma as well. So my father is, um, he, he was a drug addict and my mom was a single mom and life was not always easy for, for us. And I always, as a young child, I always was told that I wasn't smart and that I would never amount to anything. And those were all like things that I still hear in my head. And I remember when I, at a, at a certain point, I looked and I was like, you know what? I wrote a book. Like nobody would have ever thought that I would have wrote a book because I was that troubled kid. Really, mercy of me, we have some similarities, right? I was as troubled as her um, in certain aspects. And so being able to do it, it just showed me that, you know, I'm a lot tougher than what I thought I was. And, you know, I should be a little nicer to myself, too, because 
you know, we've all gone through stuff and it allows us to be the people we are and to take the stances we take. But oftentimes we don't go back and give ourselves some grace and some niceness for making it this far. So that's what I learned about myself. Yes, idea of being nicer to ourselves. It's such a it's such a big concept and it's such an important concept to, you know, you know, I like to think I, you know, if somebody comes to me for advice and if somebody is struggling with something, I always try and take a very empathetic view and try and tell people, hey, don't be so hard on yourself. Yet the people we are most hard on is typically ourselves, right? We are our own worst enemies in that regard. And how do we learn how to be like, you know what? Give yourself some grace in this situation or give yourself some understanding and trust that things may work out. Yes. Um, but I just, I, I mean, I struggle with that all the time. I worry all the time. I'm always worried mm -hmm. about something. Um, not in a crippling sense, but, you know, it's, uh, these are uncertain times we live in. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, often if the way we talk to ourselves, we would not let anybody else talk to us that way. Yet we do it to ourselves all the time and yeah. it's 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 so interesting why we do that you know so i have to ask how did you come up with the name shattered because there's a lot of symbolism in the book so i feel there's two or three areas in which like in reading the book you'll you'll see why but i feel this is what this journey did to my family it it shattered my family um very very much. And so we're still trying to put the pieces back together. Wow. Wow. That's powerful. That's a powerful, I can see the visual. It's very powerful. Um, so that, I mean, obviously the story is not over. It's not, it's, it's not, it, it's still evolving. Um, but I felt that we needed to, we were going to have to tell the story. I think we will be on this journey with Mercy possibly her whole life. And we need to, if I write another book regarding it, it would be, it, it's already a decent sized book. So I can't imagine like, you know, writing a whole novel, like a really big novel. So yeah, it, we needed to get the story out. Yeah. Well, where can people buy Shattered? So Shattered is available at, uh, on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. It's also on my website, JanelleJones.com. On my website, you can buy it. And there's also resources um, for anybody in the adoptive and foster care systems or that are looking for help. I'm also very reachable on my website as well. All right. I'll be sure to put links to all of that in our show notes. Uh, before I let you go, Janelle, I always like to get to know my guests a little bit more. And sometimes I do that through pop culture. Uh, so I'm curious if you wouldn't mind telling me um, some of your favorite TV shows when you were growing up. Did you have any? Hmm. TV when I was growing up. I watched, watched a lot more TV then than I did now. <laughs> um, so I used to love cartoons. Um so, like, even some my age, even Tom and Jerry, I used to watch. <laughs> um, I used to love to watch um, The Cosbys, um, A Different World. Um, music videos was my life in, in, in high school. So I don't even know if I watched TV or just watched that 
it was some channel in the upper channels and it was like the 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 video jukebox and it just used to play mu- music videos music videos i used to love i mean i was early days mtv yes and, yeah. oh my gosh would i watch music videos all, but my mother hated it she would you know some you know rock band would come on men with long hair apparently were, was everything wrong with the world was yes. because there were men yes. with long hair and uh um, we it's demonic right like we were all going to be going to oh believe yeah. me i had i i was the the heavy metal kid back in the day so you know iron maiden if if i mean yeah. they literally had 666 written in all of their posters and artwork yes they did yes they did. um but yeah no and then you know cosby show man oh I mean, just just such great TV. I mean, that was like, I think, I mean, we talk about the golden age of TV being the 50s, but in the 80s, we had some we had some great stuff in the Cosby show. I thought was groundbreaking. I was just I was getting into a conversation the other day with a friend of mine. We were talking about um, an episode of the Cosby show where he goes to buy Theo a car and the the actual car salesman is Sinbad, uh, the stand up comedian Sinbad. And yes. it's this classic scene where he says, okay, Theo, do not tell them I'm a doctor. You know, do not refer to me as the Dr. Huxtable because then they're going to jack up the price. And all of a sudden, they're finishing the transaction at the end of the scene. The other, another comedian, Gilbert Gottfried, walks by and he says, Dr. Huxtable, so good to see you here. And then Sinbad like, basically rips up the contract and he says, Dr. Huxtable, huh? <laughs> but man, that was but- a... Uh, but I, yes. you know, that's it's one episode that stood up to me. Um, yeah, and the different world was a spinoff from the Cosby show, right? Uh, it was, um, yeah. they, they went to college. Was it Hellman? Hellman College? Was that the college yeah. they went to? Okay, there yeah. you go. Let's yeah. Uh, how about music? What I know you said music videos. Well, who were you listening to growing up? Who was influential to so you? I, I would listen to heavy metal too, but then I would listen to like all the rap groups. I was all over. So, um, big R&B person. So I was all, if it was on, I'm going to watch it. So it seemed like once I got to high school, like that's the only channel there was. And so whatever was showing, I'm watching it. I loved in the early days of, uh, of rap where they would do crossovers with metal. Um, so run DMC was probably the earliest I remember. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. would walk this way, but they also did King of rock, which wasn't a Mm -hmm. collaboration, but. Yeah, it had a really big, you know, guitar riff throughout it. And then when Public Enemy and Anthrax did Bring the Noise, I mean, that was life-changing for me. I love that. I love that. Um, for many reasons. Flavor Flav at work one day. Oh, yeah? yeah? Yeah. He walked in with his big old clock. Yeah. Just, yeah. I was like... I, I I want a hype man like Flavor Flav just for my own for this podcast, right? I don't know what they would do. Maybe have a book around his neck instead of a oh, clock. Cool. You know, that'd be cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's uh, let me ask you this, and this will be the one we end on. If you could write a letter to your younger self, Janelle, um, I call this the letter to me or dear younger me. What would you what would you say to your younger self? Uh, taking all the wisdom you have right now, what would you tell the younger Janelle? I think I would tell the younger Janelle to enjoy the time I, I was I'm at now being young. You know, take a moment and breathe and take in everything and don't take myself so seriously and know everything is going to be okay in time. Yeah. 
There you go. It's all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. Um, very good. Well, that's a great point to end on. Janelle, thank you so much for stopping by Uncorking Your Story and letting me uncork yours. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So fun. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.